What do a science foundation and an art museum have in common? This week, we pair Adam Falk, president of the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, with Adam Weinberg, the Alice Pratt Brown, director of the Whitney Museum of American Art. The Whitney and the Sloan Foundation have big, big missions. The Whitney aims to collect, preserve, interpret, and exhibit American art, and the Sloan Foundation works to fund the research and education that makes the world better for everyone. Though one faces the art world and the other focuses on STEM, the Sloan Foundation awarded Whitney a $100,000 grant to support an exhibit on the intersection of arts and technology. This is The Nonprofit Experience, a podcast that presents candid conversations about the human experience of nonprofit work. And I'm your host, Sandy Sear. We put both Adams in a room together to talk about what working towards these goals actually looks like and the ways our current tech-focused, disbelieving society throw new curveballs at their generation's old establishments. First, you'll hear from Sloan Foundation's Adam Falk. So we know each other because uh, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation made a grant to support a really extraordinary exhibition here at the Whitney involving art and technology. And why don't you say a word about what that exhibition was all about? Well, it was an exhibition called Programmed Rules, Codes, and Choreographies in Art, 1965-2018. to And it looked at the idea that there are strains of art throughout the 20th century, and particularly the late 20th century, that was based on the idea of systems and rules. And the notion of that we think of as algorithms today and, and, and codes that, as, that are used in computers actually have their origins in systems in many ways that precede those, precede you know, the regular use of computers and handheld devices. So it was conceived of by an artist named, um, by a curator, Christian Paul, who is our adjunct curator of, of new media and digital arts here at the museum. And in collaboration, interestingly enough, with Carol Mancusi-Angaro, who is our head of conservation and research, because there was a lot of objects that needed to be kind of rediscovered, reinvented, and reconfigured um, in order to make them for the um, exhibition. But it started with um, artists such as Albert, um, Joseph Albers, who was a Bauhaus artist who came to the United States was a teacher at the Black Mountain School in North Carolina, and then ends up teaching at Yale, who was, who was famous for his studies called Homage to the Square, and the idea of creating systems of color systems through exact gradations of color and the interactions of color. And it starts, in a way, with very kind of mechanical, basic art, and then includes works, it goes right up to the present, including works that are, you know, in artificial intelligence and video and other electronic forms. So it was trying to show the connection between sort of the manual and the digital. It was a wonderful, wonderful exhibition and an unusual one for the foundation. Our program in the public understanding in science and technology takes a very broad view of what public understanding of technology is and we certainly fund documentaries and podcasts and we fund plenty of things where some scientist or technologist explains to people about some piece of science or technology but we take a view that there are other ways to bring about better public understanding of the technological world around them and one of them is through the arts and that sometimes what people need is not more explaining 
but they need to experience technology or experience the people who created those technologies in ways that create a kind of a sense of identification. So what was wonderful for us about this, about this project is that uh, it was very far from a kind of explaining way of engaging people with technology. Uh, it kind of snuck up on you a little bit that, that all of these artistic forms were really new and had been new at some point and had been created by people thinking technologically but producing something very, very different. And it was very exciting for us and really complementary to a lot of the other work that we've been doing. No, and I think for us, what I, I think was, was very effective, to your point, Adam, is that the show was very experiential. And, you know, and I, not, I'm the farthest thing from a scientist, but, but science does come from experience. It comes from observation. It comes from experiment. And I think, in a way, maybe it approached the idea of, of in a sense, almost a laboratory, where a sense where artists themselves are experimenting, are testing things, and that you're brought in not so much from the idea of being able to really technically understand, although I'm sure there are plenty of scientists who came in and tried to analyze the technical aspects of it, but for a lot of people was to be involved in the experience of art that is also the experience of science and mathematics. I think that's right, and I think it, it touches on this broader idea that's very important for us in our program, that people should understand science and technology as being part of their full lived experience. Right. That is not a thing that happens over there done by those people with tape on their glasses and white coats, <laughs> but a thing that's, it's a human activity and it touches every part of human activity. It's done by people like ourselves. And it's done not only in a kind of distant analytical spirit, but in an, emo in an emotional and engaged way right. as well. So. One of the things that we try to broaden in our program is people's sense of who scientists and technologists are. So we funded, uh, at one point, the writing of the book Hidden Figures that became that extraordinary mm -hmm. film about the group of African-American women who used the latest computer technologies to send you know, humans to the moon. And that was partly about what kind of math, what kind of technology sends people to the moon, but it was also meant to tell people that their image of who sent people to the moon was far more limited if you only imagine white men right. in Houston. And so broadening that sense of who does science uh, is really important, particularly today, when uh, I think one of the most important issues we all face is how are we as a society going to be fully inclusive in all of our activities of everybody who is in our society? I mean, I, I think... You know, my sense is, and I'd love your thoughts, is that, you know, increasingly because science is so technical and so complicated that for the average person it becomes more and more removed. And I think that exhibitions like this create an avenue of bridge, at least of understanding, because I think probably the larger societal concern is that you basically create two types of citizens in our culture, those who are the users of technology who will never have a clue of what it's about, and those who are, in effect, the producers of it, who are all into, the, into it. And actually, you need, you need both sides, from humanistic and ethical and other kinds of perspectives. And 
you know, you have to have bridges between those two cultures. Again, I'm, not, I'm, I'm so far from being a science or, or a mathematician, and I know that, but I, I think when I, when I was young, I had great interest in science, but I think as it's gotten more technical, I've actually, you know, there's almost that yeah. fear factor, and I think part of what you, you've done by supporting the show and are creating the show was to actually reduce that and say, for people, and I'm sure there are a bunch of mathematician scientists who came to see the show who probably didn't understand the art in it and understand quite what the art was about, and vice versa. Yeah, I might even have been one of those. <laughs> I was on the other. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you're you're absolutely right, and I think that part of what we're seeing in people not trusting science, people whose every aspect of their lives actually depends on right. technology not trusting things like vaccines or not believing in right. climate change speaks to exactly that distance between what C.P. Snow referred to as kind of two cultures mm -hmm. that, that we're facing today and I think increasingly facing today. And I think this exhibition is a really important bridge. That is, it allows people to, to engage with science and technology and and the, and the concerns about its rapid change, which are expressed, I thought, in, in many of these pieces, engage with those in ways that aren't, aren't didactic, but are much more immediate and experiential. And I think as well that coming into a museum to mm -hmm. do that is very powerful. And people, I think more than ever, see these spaces as spaces that are, whether they're art museums or history museums or science museums, spaces that are essential for engaging together with absolutely critical issues about the world that they're in right now. Yeah. There is a fundamental distrust of authority, whether it's the scientific authority. I think they, maybe the people are drawn to the arts because they see the arts as a kind of protest against authority, yeah. but in a bad way, and the bad thing that it does to the arts, it turns art often into a kind of political tool that is very one-dimensional because then, you know, it's like, well, we're interested in art because it questions authority. I mean, art does many other things as well. Yeah. And, I think, and I think the thing I'm struck about is that, you know, creates very very narrow interpretations of institutions, of, of knowledge gathering and all of that. There's a younger generation that is fed up and frustrated and they want, they want answers to things. Generally speaking, the sense is the machine is broken yeah. and the institutions, while museums really matter, I mean this is again one of the contradictions, yeah. they, they, they feel that places like museums are places where meaning and social issues are being fought, contested. And that's why they are being driven here, but it is also turning us into a very different kind of a forum than we were 20 years ago. I think and there's something kind of similar in the dynamic at colleges. I mean, I used mm -hmm. to be the president of Williams College, and it's a terrific institution and, and terrific students and faculty and alumni. But that same dynamic that um, I, I think young people who have grown up in a political environment, if you're 18, you've never seen a really functional political environment, mm -hmm. right? And so you, you're unsure about how change happens, how important issues are addressed. And, 
And, you know, I would see this, you know, in that context that students were passionate about things that they should be passionate about, but who looked to the institution to make immediate change, right, and who struggled to find ways to engage over the slower processes that really lead to effective change. And I think part of that comes to, I want to pick up on a word you said and ask mm -hmm. you about it, which is the word trust. Mm -hmm. That... You know, my experience uh, as a college president was that the, the constituencies, and there were many, but say if I say students and faculty and alumni, struggled to have a trust in each other's role in that institution and therefore struggled to act collectively to, to improve that institution. And that tearing down of the kind of trust that we're all trying to do the same thing, even if we don't always agree on how to do it, struck me as a kind of a fundamental challenge to the functioning of institutions that need actually trust in order to have an openness to ask big questions. And, and I think about museums again and the trust between these constituencies and is that making, and I almost hear you saying that, making it harder for the museum to kind of in an open way ask big questions about our society. Yeah, that's, I mean, this is actually the students that I talked to today, the word trust and the word belief, and I don't mean belief in blind belief, but the belief that something good or something potentially could happen, and it, and it is based on trust. And I do think there's a fundamental breakdown of trust, and it's interesting. In many ways, I would say that contemporary art has, has done, has actually contributed to it because it is always pulling the rug out from under us. You know, when we think we know what art is, somebody does something else that doesn't look like art, and everybody says, well... How could a bicycle wheel be art, like Marcel Duchamp said, or you know, um, you know, how could a popular culture figure like Mickey Mouse be in and high artwork as you know um, Jeff Koons is doing, or uh, you know, just always recasting what an artwork can potentially be. So basically, it's saying just when you think you've defined it, just when you think you know what it is, it's gone. And so we've taught people distrust it in a funny way. Maybe that's also true in technology is that, you know, I mean, I just think about if you look at just the generations of sound recording and it's not that we distrust that, but each one replaces another. So if everything is ultimately replaceable and superseded, you've taught another kind of distrust, yeah. um, which that, you know, I mean, basically the messages we're sending on one way uh, is that we shouldn't trust anything. Nothing is forever. Right. Everything is always going to change and fall apart. It's all human institutions, which we structure in terms of knowledge and everything else. Therefore, if we make it, we can break it. Yeah. And we should break it, especially if it's broken. But the thing is, you can't build anything or really create anything without going back to your word, trust. Because things are not built by individuals. They might be envisioned in a way by individuals and make partly built, but you know, especially the kinds of things that we're looking at, whether it's you know societies or whether it's an engine, a rocket, yeah. I mean, that's not built by a single person anymore. So it does take a sense of cooperation, and I think it's, our society is greatly frayed in that way. I think institutions like ours, which are long-lived, so the Whitney was founded when? 1930. 1930, and so the Sloan Foundation in 1934, right? So the better part of a century. You know, when the, when the mantra for 
the most successful companies in the world right now, the Facebooks and the Apples, is move fast and break things. We think about institutions like ours, which are meant to persist, mm -hmm. right? Which have to adapt slowly because we, we can't zig and zag all over the place. We're also, we don't have the option of going out of business in five or 10 years. This was also true of the college that I was at, which had been around for well over 200 years. You know, I think it's hard for our institutions to, sometimes I think to convince our publics of our relevance when our, I think our appropriate instinct is to move a little more slowly, is to change a little more slowly, 100%. to even if we are a museum that, uh, or a college, that, a museum that wants to display the, the as you are in the biennial, the very latest things that are going on, or a college that wants to teach the, the latest and most up-to-date things, or a foundation that wants to fund research right on the cutting edge. We do that in a context where we don't want things to change too quickly. Yeah because we, aren't the, we just aren't those sorts of institutions. And I wonder whether that's a part of the source of the, the distrust. And I think it comes back a little bit to the, everything in this conversation seems to come back to this exhibition. I mean, I think, one of the effects of these technologies is to undermine our trust in everything we see and experience, right? They have the ability of mediating experience and creating experiences so that we don't know where we stand. And that's, of course, only exacerbated now by deep fakes. And, you know, so what is that radical transparency, transparency to, right? Is it to a, to a reality that, that we know is out there or to one that's been constructed in social media, even if it hasn't been fake, but that's been a, kind of spun up in some, in some way on Facebook or Twitter. And, you know, again, these questions of what is, what, what can we hold on to that we believe? Right. I mean, and that's the, the word that keeps coming up with us in our context is the word authentic. Yeah. Not real so much, but authentic. What is authentic experience? What is, an, uh, you know, and I'm actually just looking at a picture here of one of the works that is, was in the exhibition uh, by an artist named Corey Archangel. It's called Super Mario Clouds, which is basically clouds taken from a video game that are projected on a wall very, very large. And we know that these are digitally constructed images of clouds. I mean, there's no desire to make it look realistic in any way. Yet, seeing them moving across the wall in large scale has a very kind of medit undeniably meditative quality that's yeah. probably no different than looking out the Hudson River my, out yeah. my window, and which is reality. So to your point, what is more, what is authentic about the experience? Is it the meditative quality of watching the technology? I mean, can that, is that authentic experience? Is that because it's not natural, less authentic than something is natural, which gets into the whole question of nature versus culture, too. Yeah. And, and, but I think that's, again, the basis of both wonder, in the yeah. best sense, but it's also the nature of distrust. I mean, because we really feel ungrounded in reality yeah. right now. And, you know, you see that in our political culture, yeah. where you don't know whether people are entertainers or whether they're politicians or... What, or whether they're business people, you know, the, the, all those categories are broken down. So we don't, 
you know, it's funny, categories provide us with confirmation and trust, but then we feel that we have to break down the doors because they also become jail cells yeah. too, um, to experience. And, and I guess for me, it's how do you find the balance between these things? Because I think human beings need to know that there's certain things they can trust, even if those, the things that they're trusting or almost on a preliminary basis or a, a contingent basis, understanding that this may not be the fundamental nature of reality anymore, and this is the fundamental particle. But for now, we have to accept it, we have to build on that and understand that it will broken down over time. And I think that the reaction of a lot of people is the same thing with the work of art, is we absolutely believe in the school of art or this type of artwork. We put all our belief in and then all of a sudden it has to be understood. Maybe if we just understood these things as preliminary, as you know, a basis on what you build, knowing that it is going to be yeah. broken down, not that it is the final answer, which I guess scientists do, because yes, then, yeah. for the, I would say scientists do hypotheses, understanding they're going to be broken, and I guess the artists sort of understand that too, yeah. but the public doesn't understand yeah. the things that way, I think. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I mean, when we think about our public understanding of science program, I mean, what we're trying to accomplish there, I mean, again... Yes, we would like people to understand what the latest developments are in various fields. But I think in a deeper way, these kinds of questions of people understanding what it is that scientists are really doing, right? How, what is it to grapple with the world? And it's not a sequence of clear questions and clear answers to be followed by other questions and other answers. Everything has a provisional, always has a provisional, which is not to say it might be completely wrong, but it is to say that the process of refinement of, of what we know, the process of refinement of the categories that we are using when we, when we explore the world, these are always provisional. We're refining the way that we do science as much as we're refining the science but itself. Don't you think that's maybe frightening to a lot of yeah. people and that's part of it? It's one thing... I mean, I think even scientists and artists, I mean, when they go out too far on the edge, yeah. they kind of think, wait a minute, where am I going with this? And But to, to the average person who is not even in the middle of those questions and not understanding that from a medicine point of view, how does a public person feel that everything in their life is provisional and contingent? I mean, my hope is that, in fact, that it may be comforting in the following sense, that if you are someone, as if a scientist can produce absolute answers... Then, then they have the, the status of a priest. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, what one might say they're, scientists are more like rabbis than priests. That is, they're, they're asking questions. And the, the human activity is actually not to know everything. The scientists are not authorities. Right. right? They're not channeling a kind right. of authority from on high that only they have access to. But rather, they're engaged in a human activity. And part of what we want to accomplish in the books and the movies and the plays and the music and the art that we support in this program is to help people understand science as a human activity that's one they can relate to as something that's like what they do and also a collective activity. And maybe I kind of want to come back here at the mm -hmm. end to that, that you know, our technologies as we experience them today can really atomize us. You know, we have individual experiences with our individual phones, and yet then we really don't know whether what we see is the same as what, what everyone else sees. But when we do something together, right. then we build a sense of a collective experience that we can share. And I think, I really believe that the, the, the fact that more and more people want to 
be doing cult, be in these cultural spaces together. They want to come mm-hmm. to museums more than they ever have. Mm-hmm. I think has something to do with the desire mm-hmm. to construct again a shared reality. Mm-hmm. And I think that the you know, the power of of the Whitney and the power of institutions like mm-hmm. yours is that they allow people to share in engaging these questions. And and then there's going to be conflict yeah. when when they do that. But but it's incredibly powerful. Yeah, I mean it's. I mean I think. You describe it really beautifully, Adam. I mean, because I think that unless we get people, the the larger public, whether it's art or whether it's you know science and technology, to have a sense of safety, or a sense mm-hmm. and and you know, if basically the disciplines of art and the disciplines of science are always about asking one more question and pulling out the rug again. What does that say? If it's if it's not going to be in concrete facts, ongoing facts, in other words, understanding the facts will always be, you know, which our president currently says. <laughs> but but understanding that that, that that facts to a degree are degreed, agreed upon, then we have to find the strength as human beings in something else. And I think you're right. It is a sense of community. It is a sense of sharing. The trust has to come out of something else. If it's not going to be the facts itself, it has to be on maybe how we get to those facts and understanding that that process in itself offers a sense of, I don't like to use the word safety so much, but maybe security in some yeah. sense. Because I, I, I think the biggest worry for a lot of people is they feel very insecure for a lot of reasons. And the insecurity is only going to increase in the world because of you know, climate change because of income disparities and things like that. And I think that the arts and the sciences have to offer that sense of community or communal thinking or shared ideas or something that enables people to hold on to something, to be able to take on the challenges that they're going to need to, to, you know, to move our culture forward. Because going back to what you're saying, without that trust, we're nowhere. We know where. I mean, everybody's just in their own little orbit doing their own little thing, and that, that is a really dangerous thing. So, Well, I think that's a, a good place maybe to wind up. I, one of the, the last thing I'll say is that when you run a foundation, you don't do any of the important work yourself. You look for really terrific institutions to invest in to do things that are really important. And partnering with the Whitney and making this happen was one of the most rewarding things that we've done in my time here at the Sloan Foundation. So we're very grateful to to the Whitney and to you for, um, for making all of it possible. A big thank you to our listeners for making this show possible. Our producer, Preston Whitwer, edited today's episode. Our digital director is Shalina Omar. Our production assistant is Andre Tidwell. David Mueller composed all of our music. And I'm the executive producer and host, Sandy Sear. This show is a listener-supported project of the Philanthropy Journal. You can donate, find show notes, and access previous episodes at philanthropyjournal.org. And don't forget, if you can, support a local poet, foster a kitten, and follow us on Twitter at Fijo. That's at P-H-I-J-O.